This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 13. And the last time we looked at Jesus really kind of given the parable of the vineyard, which was really an allegory to help expose the religious leaders and their motives. Uh, and you knew at the end of the parable that, he, that some of them figured out what he was doing, but he also made sure they understood what he was doing. So this sets the stage for the religious system trying to destroy the Lord uh, for various reasons. One being that he was taking away from their power base. Religion had become an institution not about getting people to God anymore, but uh, to self-aggrandize and, and grow yourself uh, in status, in authority, in financial reasons, etc. So this is going to be the second of the third sermon in Mark chapter 12. We'll be doing one more after this and completing out the chapter. Again, we're a few days away from the, resur- uh, yeah, the resurrection, but the crucifixion and then the resurrection, getting ahead of myself. Now we're going to see how the religious leaders throw traps at the Lord, doctrinal traps, hypotheticals, etc., to try to discredit him and take away the following that he has. And we'll see how the Lord answers those traps. Very ingenious by you know, the mind of God, of course. But I think that what we can take from this as well is we deal with measures or situations, scenarios where we're questioned about faith and what we believe, salvation. And we can certainly learn from what Jesus did. How can we take that and apply it to our own lives? So let's jump in on that. Verse 13 It says, then they sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, teacher, now check this out. This is a a fourfold flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true. Now remember, these were his adversaries. And that you care about no one, which really means is that you curry no man's favor or court no man's favor. For you do not three regard the person of men. But teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So the Pharisees and Herodians, very interesting, they were normally enemies with each other. The Herodians supported the Romans, and the Romans therefore gave them their power base. They almost treated the Herodians as vassal kings or as puppet kings to do the bidding of Rome. And they were part Jewish, part Edomite and, or Idumean, and they were sellout to, the, sellout to the Jewish people. Now the Pharisees were the conservatives of the day, They rejected the Herodians' messianic claims. Of course, they weren't fully from the line of David, so they naturally rejected them. The Pharisees rejected Roman occupation and tax of the Holy Land. So you can understand how they were both, they should have been or they were enemies, but they aligned themselves in an attempt to destroy Jesus. It's almost the expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And when we find that if we live a a righteous life and we try to, it'd be interesting. You've been a Christian for a while. You find people that couldn't stand each other sometimes line up to attack you because there's one goal in mind, right? Because they're not spirit-filled and they don't like and your life is a threat to them. I want to direct your attention, though, to flattery in verse 14. 
Again, this fourfold flattery. They were, what they thought they were doing was buttering Jesus up. And now, if you and I have been around long enough, you know you've experienced flattery. Sometimes people will flatter you or I and really lay it on thick in an attempt to take our guard down, in an attempt to sink us. Not, not compliments, I mean flattery. And this is what they were doing here. How many of you have listened to Casting Crowns? It's a great Christian group. There's a song called A Slow Fade, which is about adultery and a resulting broken home. And one of the lines is, is so powerful. The whole song is powerful, but the lyrics are ingenious. One of the lyrics are, it says, Be careful, little ears, what you hear. When flattery leads to compromise, the end is always near. Amen? Right? Careful of that flattery. Alistair Begg said, Flattery is like perfume. Sniff it, don't drink it. <laughs> Why am I making such a big deal over this? Because it's designed, remember, Jesus said, if they're going to do things to me, they're going to do it to you. Right? If they don't like my doctrine, you represent me, they're not going to like yours either. If they don't like my message, they're not going to like your message. Again, if we're closely aligned with the Lord, there are Christians that really are barely believers, and they really don't live a life anywhere near what the Scripture says, and they hardly ever get attacked. There's no reason for the devil to attack them. But flattery is destructive. You know, and some of you might have seen this with flattery that sometimes pastors, through positive reinforcement, will not preach the truth of the gospel anymore. Pastor gets off the pulpit, he teaches a very soft message, gets positive reinforcement. Flattery. And, and it does something to the man's heart. And over years, you might find out that some pastors get soft. They don't preach the truth anymore because there's not that positive reinforcement. So flattery is destructive. You might hear somebody may talk to you about another person and their personal problems. And if you, you know, just are being polite, they may say, well, you're not like the others. You're easy to talk to. What that's doing is it's softening you up so that you can hear the rest, so they can tell you the rest of the story without you opposing it. Here's another one. If someone's speaking to you and they say, you are so understanding, so unlike my spouse, watch out. Right? Because that can lead to real problems. So understand the whole flattery issue. But this was intended, it was definitely intended to trap the Lord Jesus. So check this out. If Jesus said, yes, sure, pay taxes, then he would have lost his populist movement with the, commun with the common folks. And this is very odd because if you would ask the, the Herodian on the street, should the Jews pay taxes, he would say, yeah, because it goes into my coffers. If you ask the Pharisee on the street, should the Jews pay taxes? They would say, absolutely no. That goes to the Romans. If Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, well, you can rest assured that they're going to contact you know, Herod or King Herod and get the guards and, and lock up Jesus for being another insurrectionist. My personal opinion, not that it matters or means anything, but I think that they expected him to say no. I think that they were saying, Jesus, you don't, you don't respect men and their positions and their authority. You always speak the truth of God. I really think that they expected him to say no so they could get rid of him. But he responds. He moves from politics to spiritual principles, which was really ingenious. Jesus had no use for politics, but he always brought everything back to spiritual principles and God. Now, the Lord's statement is interesting because it's a relationship of, of humans with their government. This is later backed up by the Holy Spirit in Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul speaks about the believer's relationship to the government. And it basically says this, if I could sum it up, that 
Submission to human government, although it's flawed, and we all know that it's flawed because it's run by people, sinners, and a lot of them are not submitted to the Lord, is better than anarchy. And we see what's happening in, in the Middle East with anarchy. When, when there's uh, just uh, chaos, when the government is deposed or there's a coup, it's a nightmare for the people. It's just, it's just who, whoever's the strongest wins. So much destruction and burning, and you know, it's really bad. It's poverty and, and disease and, and hunger uh, as a result of that. Now, here's the caveat to all this is Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, it was Peter and John, the disciples, who went were preaching about Jesus, and they were sternly warned by those who were arms of the government and said, don't preach this Jesus anymore. And they said, well, we, we have to listen to God more than we listen to men. So the caveat, obviously, is we submit to the government until the government imposes things on us that are so oppressive and so anti-God that we can't submit to it. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't pay our water bill, okay? People will make an argument for anything. But we have these discussions today, don't we? Especially in New Jersey, where we're taxed to death and even beyond the grave. And it's frustrating, it really is. But, you know, Christians should be voting. And we should really know who our candidates are. And we, listen, we have the right to vote, just as non-believers do. And if we're discerning and we have the Holy Spirit, hopefully we pick better candidates than somebody who's ill-informed or is not, um, is not sealed with the Holy Spirit. But what does the government provide? Simple, national and local defense, infrastructure, schools, courts, helping the poor, uh, not letting somebody fall so much without giving them a bed or giving them a meal or giving them something to help them to continue in life. Now, in other countries, if you're poor and you... You know, people literally die in the streets. But thankfully, in this country, we do have a lot of safety nets. So I don't want to get too much into that, but we pay for the services that we use. Okay? Now, verse 17 is very important. Jesus says, Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give God what is God, what belongs to God. This is where it gets interesting, because sometimes God's people are so busy and so concerned about what Caesar's getting that they're really not being concerned about what they should be giving to God. It's a diversion at times. You know, Christians today, a lot of Christians are into causes, and a lot of them are good causes. However, it's not something which we should derive our purpose from, or not something that we should be drowning ourselves in at the expense of God. Is that same Christian giving God what he desires and what he deserves? John 14, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll follow my word. Oh, I love Jesus. And they, no one, they don't read the word. Well, how, how could you say you love Jesus? Jesus says, uh, loving me is, is directly proportional to obedience to my word. So if we don't know what his word says, then we can't say that we love Jesus because love is not a feeling. That's what we've turned it into. We've been brainwashed by the movie industry. Love is a feeling. They even make adultery look good, don't they? Right? Some of these movies, it's, oh, what a love story. Yeah, but they're, they're both married and they're, they're with, you know... It's not beautiful, it's adultery. But this is what we learn, and this is how we get poisoned at times by our culture. So, what does God want? Well, he, he wants us to know him through his word. He wants us to talk to him. Prayer is talking to God. He wants us to exercise our spiritual gifts. That's why he gave them to us. You know, in the local church or our local communities. Or is the immersion in causes just window dressing? To make ourselves look good. I can make myself look good up here, but if you, you know, my wife knows, you know, I, she, she sits in and listens to every one of my sermons. 
you know, she'll call me on the carpet if I say something that's not truthful. And that's what I love about my wife. She makes me a better person. But I'm not perfect. None of us are. We, but we all have a function in the body of Christ, don't we? God uses sinners. Why? I don't know. He could use angels, but he uses us. Amen? So check this out. Well, you probably, if they would have flipped Jesus the coin and he looked at the denarius, he would have seen uh, Tiberius Caesar's image on it. So, on the coins were the image of Caesar. On us is the image of God. Believer, sealed with the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Caesar's image was on Caesar's coins. Right? God's image is on the believer. That's why we're supposed to be representing him accurately. We're supposed to be a light to the world as he was. We're supposed to be Christian meant little Christ follower and it was used in a derogatory sense initially. But I'm, I'm good with that. I want to be a little Christ. I want when people see me to see Jesus. Uh, on a bad day, uh, you know, I'm, I feel ashamed. Okay, but as Caesar's coins eventually migrated back to Caesar, how much more, brothers and sisters, should we be migrating back to God? Even the stupid, inanimate coins found their way back into Caesar's treasury. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We should be finding our way back to God on a daily basis. As Christians, we should be more concerned with our relationship to God than extraneous things. See, Jesus was always focused on the heart. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable back then and today. Jesus, in a sense, has x-ray eyes. You know, when I pray at night or I work later and I'm driving home, there's nobody around, give it up. <laughs> what do I have to repent for? What did I do wrong? What, how did I not um, portray myself as, as, as the best I could be as a man of God? God knows. Imagine that in prayer saying, you know, Lord, you're so lucky to have me. It's just, you know, it, it, there should be a billion people like me on the planet. It's just a waste of air. We might as well be doing something else with it. But, you know, we, we need to be honest. Jesus knows what's going on on the inside. You know, it's not about window dressing. You know, give to Caesar. Give to Obama. Give to Christie. What's theirs? But give to God what's God's. We should be more focused on that and not diverting ourselves to other attention. Verse 18. It says, Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher... Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven, I got to stop here for a minute. <laughs> and by the time the third or fourth guy, he could have said, maybe this isn't a good idea, okay? Because brothers keep boom, boom, one by one, and, you know, it's not looking really good here. So, the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman dies. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? An alternate translation is, Are you not therefore deceived? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. Where do I read to you who the Sadducees were and how powerful this is, how he speaks to them in this manner? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, 
but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken or greatly deceived. Now the Sadducees, who were they? Well, if the, if the Pharisees were more conservative in their leaning, the Sadducees were more liberal in their leaning. Nothing's changed over a few thousand years. But the Sadducees were priests. They had great authority over the masses. They were aristocrats, which means they were wealthy. Life was good for a Sadducee, and I'll come back to that. There's a little ditty in Calvary Chapel and makes fun of their name, says, they were sad, you see. You know what, I have to refute that. They weren't sad, you see. These guys were on top of the world. They had everything they could possibly want, and we'll talk about that. They were the liberal, humanistic theologians of the day, and the things that they were against were a long list. Some of them are as follows. They didn't believe in angels, demons, the resurrection, the afterlife, or judgment. That's why they're putting this to Jesus. Like, it actually was brilliant on their part for a, for a, a human being to come up with this earth-tethered, humanistic, um, spiritual question to the Lord to throw him off. In their minds, it was genius, and actually it was, if you think about it. But Jesus came from heaven, so he knows what heaven looks like, and here he's here to elucidate and help them understand what, it, what really is going on up there. But in Acts 23.8, you can see some of their doctrinal issues. It talks about it. Now, they were against a lot of things. Some believers today are against a lot of things. You know, some believers, you know more about them, about what they're against than what they stand for. You know, we can be against this and that, and we can hear it from our pulpits, against this and against that. But you know what? People should know us for what we're for. We should be leading them towards the truth of salvation. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of confusion. Right? There's a lot of white noise in, in society, on the Internet, and ministries. We need to always be focusing people because anyone who's not saved is a prodigal, and they need to go back to God. And it's our job to explain the Scriptures to them and help them to get back to their Father, their Heavenly Father, their Creator. So this is the trap, and look, if we're going to actually turn to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. As, as I read this, think about the story of Ruth and Boaz, right? the whole kinsman-redeemer uh, situation. So Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. They were actually speaking about Leverite marriage, and this is how it goes. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall be married to a stranger, shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go in to her, take her as wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother. So carrying on the name of the brother who died prematurely that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go to the gate of the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him, try to persuade him. And if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. I found that humorous. <laughs> and, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. And when you go from Hebrew to English, there's, you know, there's a little bit of, you get the picture of what's, what's going on here. 
Remember in, in Ruth and Boaz, uh, Boaz wanted to take her as wife. But he said, there's one closer to you, or closer to you than me, and he, he gets first right of refusal uh, by law. And when he decided not to take her, because he had an issue probably with her being a Gentile woman, uh, then Boaz married her, and, and he was the kinsman redeemer. So it's a really beautiful love story, uh, but you can see it based on these laws. So since marriage is binding in the eyes of God, here's the, here's the thing to Jesus. Jesus, you have a problem. Number one, which husband gets her, or is it a polygamous situation? That's the, that's the thing that they're throwing at him. Now, and I, and I looked at this before I studied it, before I actually came up here, polygamous situation, sort of like in Mormon theology, spirit wives. There's polygamy involved. Muslim theology, the 72 virgins. I looked at the Hadith and the Quran, and it's there. And it's, I tell you what, when you read the Hadith, it's pornographic. Okay, so that being said, this is the flaw in humanistic religions. They believe that heaven is going to be the same, a continuation as the things on earth, and that you can always find the flaw in a humanistic religion. Because Jesus would say that today to some of these cults. You don't know what you're talking about. It's not like that in heaven. I was there, right? I saw what was going on up there. I came here to die for the sins of the people. So if a doctrine is not spirit-based, there's always going to be a flaw in it, especially when it comes to the afterlife. So this, But again, this was a, a brilliant trap on the part of the Sadducees, so they thought, right? Brilliance is earth-tethered. Remember that. The Apostle Paul said that pride puffs up. So you can also understand, and, and we, I get a lot of these questions from Christians about scientists, and, and they get a little intimidated. Well, you know, we worked on the Large Hadron Collider on the Swiss border in 17 miles, and we accelerate particles, and we found the Higgs boson, and the, whatever. <laughs> okay, big deal. So they found the Higgs boson. Whoop-de-doo. It doesn't change anything of what the Scripture says. Now, the, the scientist who's so smart and is not a godly man, this is his God. He has his own theology because he doesn't want anybody to be above him because he can possibly be the top physicist on the planet. Submitting to God puts him in a, in a position of subservience and obedience where he doesn't want to be. So this works for the brilliant scientist because he's earth-tethered. But here's the problem with, with thinking that you believe something or believe to be true, and then you end up in the afterlife. Whoever it is, whichever person, whichever cultic figure, or whatever false theology, it's almost like if somebody's breaking into your house and they're robbing, they're going to rob you, and you, you stand in the hallway and you close your eyes and say, he's not here, he's not here, and then you open and the person's right in front of you and you've got to deal with the issue. This is the same thing with these people who deny God. What, has, what happens is when they die and they breathe their last, hoping desperately that they flatline afterwards that there's no consciousness the the moment after they die and they wake up in eternity whether they have spiritual eyes i don't know how god does this but they will be conscious of the fact that they have to stand before the judge and there's no way back there's no do-overs once you get to that point so you can say i don't believe in gravity i can stand on this roof and say i don't believe in gravity i don't believe in gravity and i jump off and i break my legs and my back because gravity exists regardless of whether I think it, I believe it or not. And that's the sad thing with the, with the atheistic scientists, because they work, supposedly, they worship at the altar of science. Well, there is fact. There's a, there's a, a supernatural fact that they're completely omitting, although they want to agree to the natural laws. You see what I'm saying? 
There's other laws that go on after we die, but they don't want to submit to that. And it's going to be a rude awakening. We have to pray for people, though. I'm not saying it to make fun of them. Let me just read to you, if we could turn to Luke 20, starting with 34. Because Luke puts, it's a longer gospel, so he adds more nuance to the conversation. He, him and Matthew elaborate further. So I want to read this. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age, meaning the age that we are presently in, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. He says, for those are, that are worthy to attain that age. You've heard the expression that grass is greener on the other side, or it's not greener. This is the only instance in life where the grass is truly greener on the other side. Jesus says, that's where it's at. We live our lives a lot because we feel we have a central nervous system, we have memories, we have good feelings, and, and we enjoy at times this life when it's pleasurable, but it's going to be better over there. And Jesus spent a lot of time trying to convince people of that. But even Christians today lives, live as if this is the only thing, as if there's not an accountability, there's not, there's not etern eternality, and there's nothing in the afterlife. Jesus said it's better there for those who are worthy to attain that age. And how do we get to that age? How our sins have to be forgiven. We have to believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So there's a few spiritual truths. There's four of them that I'm going to cover. And then we'll close. Four spiritual truths about the afterlife based on this passage. Number one, those resurrected in Christ are not subject to death ever again. Jesus promised us eternal life. And that's, if you think about how long we... We've been here, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. The more eternity goes on, we can't even see the pinpoint anymore of our lives. Number two, because of that, there's no marriage or raising families because the young are not replacing the old anymore and we're not needing to populate the earth. Right? Those souls, nobody dies. They live forever. Number three, for that reason, I believe, and I'm going to get into this, that there's a perfect age, so to speak, uh, an eternal age that we're locked in at and we don't age. We don't feel the effects of aging like we do here. So in eternity, the clock stops at some point and that's it. And I'll get into that. And four, we're equal to angels in eternality but not in kind. That's very important to understand. And I've heard this at funerals. You know, Bob got his wings. He's got his harp and he's on the cloud. No, he didn't get his wings. He's not an angel. They're completely a different kind than we are. Angels have their purpose. We have our purpose. We are eternal, but we're not hanging around on a, on a cloud with wings and doing stuff that angels do. All right? So let's look at this. What I'm saying about this, this, this uniform age, I mean, seriously, what's the best age in life? Is it 50? Is it 30? Is it 40? 
You ask 100 people, they'll give you 100 different answers. Depends on what happened in your life at 50, 40, or 30, right? So, so put that aside. My understanding is that in heaven, my wife will be like my sister. That my son will be like my brother, even though he's a teenager. That babies won't be crawling around in heaven for eternity, the poor things. You know, that older folks with disabilities won't be having a hard time getting their way around heaven. So in other words, there's age-limiting factors, right? Special needs. Uh, children and people won't have special needs anymore. They'll be free from that. They'll be, they'll be easily to communicate, easy to move around, more independent. Right? That's my understanding from what I'm reading. There'll be no more disability, no more sin, no more self-loathing characteristics, bad, painful memories. And this is all good news. Revelation tells us that. No more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain for the former things have passed away. So the things that you hate about yourself or your past or things about your past that affect your present and you just can't get over it, it's all gone. Isn't that nice? Doesn't this picture get prettier and prettier? You know? You know, self-loathing characteristics, people, things that people hate about themselves. It's not there anymore. But you couldn't get this from a humanistic Sadducean viewpoint. Now, let me leave you with this. We talked a little bit about false theology, you know, false eschatology, what happens in the end. And I've actually coined a term that's called character or desire-based theology. And what it means is that people will gravitate at the smorgasbord because we live in America. You know, there's, there's God's way, there's the Bible, and then there's thousands of cults. And you can pick whatever you want. All kinds of false teaching. I'll have the lobster tail. I'll have the, you know, the stuffed mushroom. I'll have the celery sticks. In religion, you can pick whatever you want. People pick theologies based on their character. So let me, let me go through this. If you're a Sadducee, number one, you're living large in the first century. Everybody else is suffering. It's not your problem. Life is good to be a Sadducee. So guess what? Your theology is going to focus on the here and now, and you're going to scoff at the afterlife. You don't want the afterlife. Things are too good here. Two, those with a low opinion of women will choose a teaching where women are eternal sex objects. It is what it is. Three, the brilliant scientists... Wait a minute, Pastor Joe. You said theology. They don't believe in God. Trust me. To believe what they believe takes more faith than what we believe as, as Christians. They believe in a form of nihilism, um, a form of it. They believe in the flatline theory that when they die all conscious activity ceases because they are doing very well here and very smart and nobody's above them. A lot of them wrote books and, and papers and you know they have all these degrees and nobody can dominate them. I've talked this about a Wednesday night Bible study. If you ever watch some of these uh, physicists debate each other, they're nasty because they want to be the top dog. They want to be the top physicist. Um, and even the one guy, is it Stephen Hawking, the one who's disabled? They have no mercy for him. Survival of the fittest, right? That's really in the back of their minds. Now, of course, the Christians ones don't treat them like that, but it's a dog-eat-dog -dog show, man. They'll tear each other to pieces to be the top physicist in the world. Four, the greedy and the shallow will swear allegiance to the prosperity gospel because that's what they want. They always want money in their pocket. They never want to be sick. They never want to have problems. That's what they'll swear their allegiance to. I find it ironic that Paul Crouch, really the father of TBN and one of the, the big, um, he passed away, one of the big uh, prosperity teachers of our time, 
had a chronic lingering illness that killed him. And all his top millionaire prosperity guys have been praying for him, and he still lingered and lingered, and it was chronic, and he eventually died. What happened? What happened to your theory that you're telling everybody else to follow and telling the cancer patients to send their money to Kenneth Copeland so he can buy another airplane while they die because they can't get their cancer treatment because you brainwashed them on television? I, I have very little sympathy for that group because I know what they do, right? You want my honest opinion? This is always a good one, right? <laughs> my honest opinion is that in the flesh, I'm not thrilled with everything I read in the Scripture. I don't like to read the Bible and be convicted by his words. But it doesn't matter what I think. My opinion means nothing. And that's why I always separate it from the Word of God. God's opinion means everything. So it doesn't matter what I don't like or you don't like or you don't like in the Scripture. It's good for us, and we know that in the Spirit. And when we're spirit-filled, we love, we enjoy his word. It's like food to us. It sustains us spiritually. So it doesn't matter what we like. It matters what the truth is. All right, one more thing, and then we'll, we'll kind of close it up here. So here's a loaded question. People ask me this all the time. What about... Pastor Joe, and again, it's, it's in our limited, finite minds. What about, Pastor Joe, the things that we really enjoy here, and it does seem that it's not there? So I'll go through some of them. Love, sex, excitement, physical exertion. We've got some workout people in here, workout um, to the max. Uh, drugs, alcohol, thrill-seekers, adrenaline junkies. This is basically what you have. You have three basic neurotransmitters in the brain. Dopamine serotonin, and epinephrine. And what happens is they are responsible for pleasure, excitement, a feeling of I am, I exist, well-being, and things like that. And when we do these things, it's an amazing response. The brain is an incredible machine because it can completely energize the, the entire central nervous system, you know, innervate the limbs, receive from the sensory nerves, stimuli from the outside. The brain is the coolest thing, you know, all the synapses. So you have these three chemicals that really kind of bathe the brain and the synapses at times, and then they reuptake, and you get your SSRIs and all that kind of stuff from that. So what we think is, we think we feel it here. We think we feel it here. But really, where we feel it is here. It's a, it's a machine that God created for this world. So what am I saying to you? I'm saying is that if God takes away something... Okay, he always replaces it with something better. So Pastor Joe, so what's it going to be like in heaven? I don't know, <laughs> but it's going to be good. I can only tell you what I read from the scripture. Okay, I can tell you what the words say. There's things that I don't know because it's not in here. It's a mystery. But we ask sometimes, what well, could be better than these? Again, the answer is we'll see. There was a, a term called Christoplatonism which uh, came about, I don't know, maybe in the Middle Ages, and you see these paintings. Uh, you see angels, and they're like chubby little kids with curly hair with little wings, and people on clouds and harps, and that's not scriptural. It's actually not my idea of a good time anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but that's not reality, and I think what people do is they focus so much on what they think heaven's going to be like, a dull place. It's not. It's not going to be a dull place. I mean, we're going to be able to traverse uh, atmosphere and go from the new city of Jerusalem to the heavenlies to the new earth and, and, and God's going to make everything beautiful again for us. It's going to be an exciting place. 
I mean, we're going to be really jazzed up about that place. And believe me, when we're enjoying it, you guys can come to me and say, hey, yeah, you were right. That sermon was right on. This is, this is good stuff. So, so that's, you know, we, we just have to trust God. He's not a mean God. And again, anything he ever removes, he replaces with something infinitely better. So, last two verses. 26 and 27. Let's read it again. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, speaking about Exodus 3, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. What does Jesus do? He uses their own doctrine to show them that they're wrong. You, you guys don't accept anything but the first five books? No problem. Let's, let's look at Exodus 3. Jesus goes right to the heart of Exodus 3 and uses God's own words to help them to see the foolishness of their ways. God says what? I am. What's the name of God? It's not Joe or, or Fred. His name is, Moses is like, well, who should I tell them that you are? He didn't have a name or a title. His name was yod heh vav in the Hebrew that is a very, I've talked to a lot of Jewish uh, scholars about this. It's, it's, it's a very powerful expression, meaning God is I am. He's present. I am and that, that I will ever be. So there's an element of, of present and future. So God doesn't have a name like we do, but his name is extremely expressive of who he is. So God is the God of, of now. God is the God of the present. He's the God of the future. And when he speaks about the patriarchs, he speaks about the patriarchs as being presently alive in this conversation. Here's another thing that's interesting. Um, thousands of years later, Jesus is quoting Exodus. So how do you go to church and people say, or from the pulpit, oh, Genesis is an allegory. Well, Exodus, you know, and, and they try to explain this stuff away. Jesus quoted Genesis in the past. He's quoted Exodus. He's quoted Jonah. Jesus referred back to the beginning as if it was historical fact, which it is. So we can't start um, to make the world happy, start taking little pieces of the Bible and say, well, that might not have been right. Well, that might. well, where does it end? It's like the thread on the garment that we keep pulling it and it eventually unravels. It's all his word. So how does Jesus avoid these traps? Well, number one, he's not afraid to point out fallacies in others and their doctrines. When we looked about, talked about the Pharisees and the Herodians, he said to them, quote, why do you test me? In Matthew's gospel, he heard Jesus say, you hypocrites. I know what you guys are doing. I know what you're up to, and I'm not buying it. To the Sadducees, in verse 24, he said, you are mistaken, you're deceived. In verse 27, he said, you are greatly mistaken, greatly deceived. Similar to Jesus, we can't be afraid of pointing out things that are just not true. That's not true. What you believe or what you've been taught, it's not true. This is what the scripture says. You know, I know a young brother in the Lord who set out not to become a Christian, but to disprove Christianity. And he ended up in some different churches, and he ended up in one that was preaching false gospel, and he called the guy out. It was a youth leader. And I think it was done in love, because he was trying to say, well, this is what the scripture says, and you guys are teaching these young people this. No, this is what it says in the Bible. Out of the mouth of babes, you've ordained praise, uh, Psalms tells us. So we can't be afraid to say that something is wrong or false. I know we live in the age of pluralism. I know we live in the age where everybody's right and entitled to their own beliefs, but some things are just wrong. 
The second thing is, Jesus never answered presuppositional questions. To the Pharisees and Herodians, they said, yes or no, Jesus, pay taxes. Jesus says, neither. It's not a simple yes or no answer. Let me see the, let me see the coin. To the Sadducees, they said, so Jesus, which, which husband had her in the afterlife? First one, second one, third husband, fourth, fifth, sixth. Jesus says, no, you guys are wrong again. I'm, I'm not answering that question because there's no marriage in heaven. You guys are completely off base. So we can't be afraid to reject false presuppositional premises. How many of you are familiar with the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925? Well, you've got you to read up on that. That trial, it's a long story, but that was a trial that actually opened the door to public schools teaching more of evolution and less of creationism. Here's the problem. You had your, those who were creationists and Christians believed a certain thing. We have a few school teachers here. I, I love, and a science school teacher, I love having the discussion with him. Because he's, he's totally, he's like, I'm not preaching evolution. But the problem is the, the, the atheist or the, um, the evolutionist said, well, let's presuppose. How many of you have heard of the infinite monkey theorem? Infinite monkey theorem? Okay, one person, two, three. That basically says this was an old mathematical conundrum, which says if you have millions of monkeys... This is so ridiculous, isn't it? I even have to say this. But this was in the trial. If you have millions of monkeys with millions of typewriters, and they're all typing away feverishly, at some point, given enough years, billions and trillions of years, they can actually produce the works of Shakespeare. Because randomness, eventually, give it enough time and enough effort, will lead to something that's orderly. I'm talking about monkeys on typewriters in a, in a court of law in the United States in 1925. I would have said, no, I'm not giving you that. I believe that the creationists conceded that point. Big problem. Because in the primordial soup, all right, if we're going to talk about evolution, you got saline, all right, salt water. And even if it's not salt water, water is the universal solvent. So you have these peptides and these, these, these um, you know, different elements, and they bond together and make simple proteins, these simple peptides. And eventually, given enough time, millions of years, the peptides can become polypeptides, and then they actually become early life forms. Here's the problem. There's actually a law called the law of mass action that says that as readily as things bond, especially in a universal solvent like water, things will unbond. So you have a di and tripeptide, and then they go back into smaller. And this happens. It never... So, so the argument is that if you had the millions of monkeys on the millions of typewriters, if we're going to make that analogy with you know, life arising out of the primordial soup, what has to happen is as the monkeys are typing, right, as they get to the bottom of their page, the first part of the page disappears. They should have never conceded that point. We do that too much as Christians. We concede points that are not concedable points. They make no sense. I think that as believers, we need to know our word. And we need to know a little bit about what goes on in the world in the natural sciences and where in the scripture it points to the natural sciences, such as the expanding universe and the planets on a circle and, and the, the circle of the earth when in the Middle Ages nobody read their Bibles because it was Latin and nobody knew this. They thought the earth was flat. So you see where I'm going with this? We can't concede these points. Most importantly, let me just say this, that Jesus, as the word of God, used God's word, and he used God's spirit never to be trapped in this manner. We live in a challenging world, brothers and sisters. We live in a world where people are hurting. You don't have to go very far in your own communities to find somebody who's depressed, who lost their job, 
who's um, going back and forth to the doctor's office, you don't have to go far. You know, people are hurting economically. They don't know how they're going to, you know, raise their kids. You know, it's a challenging world. And, and brothers and sisters, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We have the answers. Sometimes we have to just be a little bit concerned about not our own schedules and such and think about ways that God can open up our hearts, open up our eyes to discern somebody that needs to be ministered to. Like I said last Sunday, how bad does it have to get when we have ISIS running around cutting people's heads off and Americans going over with them to do that and support them financially? That's messed up. I mean, how bad does it get, brothers and sisters, before we come out of our own little microcosms, our own little worlds, and realize that God has work for us to do, right? The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. So we look at the examples of the Lord, and certainly the most important one that we need to look at is that Jesus Christ always used the word of God and the sword of spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts and to lead people to salvation. Will we do the same? Let's pray.